Welcome to the C3 Church Watson podcast. Our vision is to connect you to Jesus, develop you as a follower of Christ, and empower you to build the church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. We're into our final week on Jonah. And what a series it's been. Has anybody else sort of noticed that Jonah is quite a dramatic person? Because I have. Uh, there's a lot going. Yeah, he's, he, he goes through a lot. Uh, and I've been really enjoying getting deep into the book of Jonah. And I'm excited to finish off our series looking at the final chapter, chapter 4. And I believe we've got a great word, that God has a great word for us today. Um, but I, I want to begin... I want to begin if, with, with, with a bit of a question, which is ironic because it's about questions. And have you ever thought about the power of a question? Oh, yeah. Think about famous questions throughout history. I'm sure someone was sitting there and sort of turned to Abraham Lincoln and, and, and said, why should the new U.S. territories have slaves? And then they have a civil war. Or I'm sure somebody looked at the guy who invented the car. I don't know who it was. And said, why should we have to ride horses everywhere? Surely there's a better way. Or somebody looked at Steve Jobs and said, why shouldn't we have good computers? Or somebody looked at President, uh, President Kennedy and said, what would it be like to go to the moon? Huh. Let's find out. The power of a question. All these big ideas, I'm sure, started with a small question. I'm also loving this time of year. It's summer. It's warm but it's also a bit of wedding season. And I've been going to a few weddings and wedding events with um, friends back, back up in Sydney. And of course, Megan is quite pregnant at the moment. She's 35 and a half weeks. And so the question everybody is asking me, and it's a powerful question, is, do you feel ready? Oh gosh, I did until you asked the question. And all of a sudden you have to come up, you know, you, you're challenged. You have to re-examine your position. I work... As a consultant by day, I'm a preacher on the weekend, but consultant by day, and I joke, I joke. <laughs> but I ask questions all the time. And often we have to try and work out the best way to ask the question because something to me might mean something completely different to you. You might call something a plan, but really I've asked about a strategy and you think I'm talking about a framework. And we have to work out what exactly it is that I need. But questions, 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 they're, they're really important. Kids love questions. They ask why. They ask, can I do this? And of course, we respond, well, you could. But did you ask the right way? I'm a happily married man, so I've seen lots of movies, rom-coms, Nick Sparks ones. Most famously, The Notebook, and there's that famous scene where Ryan Gosling's character asks, now I got this one wrong yesterday, but it's Rachel McAdams' character, and he says, what do you want? And she can't answer, and she says, it's not that simple. What do you want? He asks over and over again. And I'd be lying if I said I hadn't found, found myself in a similar situation with Megan. <laughs> Especially when it comes to food. But the last eight months, last eight months have been a lot easier with food questions, I will be honest. So in movies, in stories, in speeches, in whatever, questions are a great way to draw attention to a point. Would you agree? See what I did there? Ah, uh, got you again. Ha. Huh. All right, I'm on it. I'm on it. So the same applies when we're reading the Bible. God loves to use questions to make a point, both to the people he is talking to at the time, but also to us as readers. God draws our attention to our own hearts. 
when he asks questions in the Bible, using them to highlight what he really needs us to take away. So when I'm reading the Bible, I'm looking for a few things. Like, to re- like when I'm engaging with it, when I really want to study, I look for things like the word therefore, because that supposes something has changed. Because of this, do this. These are, these are just tips, free tips. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm also looking for things like but, you know, if the, word, if, if the Bible says but, I know that something has happened and something has changed. I'm also looking for questions. So with that in mind, let's work our way through Jonah chapter 4 and We've read every word of the book so far, so why stop today? It's only 11 verses. We will be, you, you'll be right. And just, just for way of context, remember what has happened in chapter 3. Jonah has delivered his eight-word message, potentially only eight words. And the Ninevites have responded by declaring a fast, and God has saved them. That's the, the spark notes for chapter 3. And we begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in shade till he should see what what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, dramatic, I told you, because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Then the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people, persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God in charge of it all. Lord, I thank you that you care about a great city with 120,000 persons and cattle. And God, I pray that we will be open to the questions that you're asking Jonah and open to the questions that you're asking us. God, I pray that you'll be highlighting your sovereignty in our world. And Lord, I pray that you will speak through me today and that they'll be your words and not mine. Amen. So as I sort of alluded to, as I read Jonah chapter 4, my eyes immediately are drawn to, to a repeated or two questions that repeats the same thing. Do you do well to be angry? To me, this was a sign that was important. Anytime somebody asked me the same question twice, my ears prick, especially if it's my wife or my mum. Did you really do that, Tim? Did you really? Oh, 
Yes, I did. So when there's two questions, my ears prick. What is it there for? Why, why is God repeating himself? And as I read Jonah chapter 4, I see two questions. I'm intrigued and I want to examine what, what, what is God trying to get me to ask myself. And I think there are three things that we can take away, three questions that we can start to ask ourselves as we walk away from reading Jonah chapter 4. And all of them link to the overarching biblical Christian theme, the principle of God's sovereignty, of his sovereignty in our lives, in our world, and his authority over all things. But we'll get back to that. So first, I find it interesting that in response to God's first question, Jonah, he's asked, do do you do well to be angry? In verse 4, Jonah doesn't actually respond. When don't we respond to questions? When the answer is exceedingly, to quote Jonah, exceedingly obvious. It does not do well for Jonah to be angry. It's like when a toddler has something in their mouth and it's clearly not meant to be there. And you ask, what's in your mouth? And they just shake their head, don't do anything. You know exactly that it's not a good thing. Or Megan, I was, I was practicing with Megan and, and she mentioned that she doesn't like to answer questions when she doesn't like the answer. Maybe, maybe Jonah doesn't like the answer that he has to give God. So when God asks Jonah whether he will do well to be angry, the answer is clear. It will not do him well. It is not right, and Jonah knows it. By asking him this question, though, God is inviting Jonah to examine his own heart and attitude towards God. So the first question we are, asked to in, we are encouraged to ask ourselves is, what are your feelings towards God? You may not be angry at God like Jonah is, but you may be frustrated. You may be hopeless. You may feel annoyed or disappointed. Or maybe even your feelings just of apathy. You've given up on him. You just sort of don't feel anything anymore. Instead, we are called to have a a heart that is set in a position of having hope, in having faith, trusting in Him. So God uses questions all the time to reveal how the posture of our heart has become misaligned with His with His with His own heart. In Genesis chapter three, we see God ask Adam, "Who told him he was naked?" In verse. Chapter 3, verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In Exodus 14, verse 15, God asks Moses, he says to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am. In Matthew 20, verse 32, Jesus stops and asks two blind men, 
what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. In each of these questions, we see God, we see Jesus inviting the person they are speaking to to examine their own heart and actions, to look at what they have done, why they have done it, to confront it and think about what they truly feel, what they truly want. He gets them to confirm their own position to get to the core of the matter. And with Jonah, we see God do the same thing. God asks Jonah a question to get Jonah to confront what he was truly thinking, to deal with his own hardened heart. So I wonder, do you need to do the same? Is God asking you to examine your own heart? In the face of God's great grace and mercy, Jonah is angry at God. He's angry at God because God is following his perfect divine plan and demonstrating his goodness and grace. God's doing what God does, and Jonah is angry. Are you angry at God? Are you disappointed with him? Upset that your plans aren't aligned with his plans? Are you frustrated with what you were going through? Look, I, I know I have been. My plans are not aligned with God's plans a lot of the time. I'm frustrated that sometimes, or I'm sometimes frustrated, because my dreams that I dreamed are not, not where I am now. But I know that God has it all, he's doing it all for a purpose. He has it all in control. So when I'm frustrated that it feels like God and I aren't singing from the same playbook, from the same hymn book, I know that really the problem lies with me, not with him. So instead I need to change my posture, to change my heart, to be glad, to be surrendered to him, to have faith in him and have hope in him. But you might, as I said, you might not even just be angry. You might not feel anything at all. You may have given up on God. Well, even then, we're called to trust in Him, to have hope in Him, to find joy in God. And whilst it's not always easy to hear, we do need to, from time to time, examine our heart towards God. We need to understand what it's trying to tell us, trying to tell us if we need to make a change. I'm sure there are times when we're in a great position with God. But I also know that all of us, at some point, will need to reposition our heart towards Him. So we can control our feelings, and therefore, instead of being angry, we choose to feel at peace. We choose to feel joy. Instead of frustration, we need to drive ourselves to feel content, knowing that God is in control. And we're not promised this, that this will be easy. The Bible tells us that we will face tough times as believers, that we are to take up our cross. And in Matthew chapter 16, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yet as we do this, we're all still part of God's great and perfect plan. So the first thing I'm encouraged to do as I read Jonah chapter 4 is to ask myself, what is my heart towards God? The next question 
that I think we need to ask ourselves, it's maybe stating the bleeding obvious, but what is our heart towards others? The whole book of Jonah is calling us to question what our heart is towards others. But in chapter 4, we get sort of a clearer picture of just what Jonah is upset about. Jonah is angry at God, that, that's clear, but he's angry at God because God has forgiven people who Jonah didn't think deserved it. One of the key things I think we've learned over the last few weeks, not in a theological sense, but is that Jonah's pretty dramatic. He is basically having a four-chapter four tantrum. He's throwing the, the toys out of the cot, He's given a task to do by God, and so what is his response? To go the complete opposite direction. He then gets caught in a storm, and his solution is to throw himself overboard. He then sort of complains and does what he's told and travels back and delivers a half-hearted, potentially only eight-word message of salvation to the Ninevites. And then when God does what God has done for Jonah's own people throughout history for the Ninevites, he gets angry and complains, and again, he wants to die. He is exceedingly angry. He's, he's a man of extremes, I tell you. But what triggered all of this response was Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites. And whilst we heard last week just how bad these people were from Jess as, as she explained just the culture that the Ninevites had. I just want to remind you one thing, that before Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 is read, God knows what the Ninevites have done. And yet he still calls Jonah to go and speak to them. Verse, chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God knows. God knows everything Jonah knows. And yet God still sends Jonah. God still wanted, wanted his message to get to them. And the funny thing about Jonah is that he knew what God would do. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It is wrong to think that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was scared of what they might do to him. The correct thing is that Jonah was scared to go to Nineveh because he knew what God would do for them. He knew that God would show his mercy. He knew that God would show his grace to them. And in this chapter, God illustrates why. Jonah chapter 4 is God illustrating why. Jonah, Jonah he sends his message. They're having a, 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 a fast. And Jonah goes and sets up on a hill. He sets up a little lookout. He watches. And he's waiting to see their destruction. He goes, oh, oh, oh this will be good. I'll wait 40 days. He's clearly setting up for 40 days. That's what he said would happen. And so God, just being God, one night plants a tree and it grows overnight. The next night, the next day, oh, Jonah's happy. He's got a tree. He's got some shade. The next night, he sends a worm who eats at the root of the tree and kills the tree. 
And then God sends, just to really nail the point home, he sends a hot sun. And so Jonah's shade disappears. He's in the sweltering heat and he gets angry. And again, he wants to die. Wow. And now we get to Jonah's question once more. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah's reply in tantrum, he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. God replies basically saying, Jonah, you're so angry you want to die because a tree died, which you did nothing for. You didn't plant. You didn't raise. You didn't look after it. And yet imagine how much more I care about 120,000 people who are made in my image, who I created and who I care for, whose every hair on their head I know. You have no right to be angry that I save them. And yet I have, I, God, have every right to want to see them saved. The whole book of Jonah finishes with this point. And yes, to drive home the message, God uses a question. So I wonder, does your own heart break when you think about the people in your world who don't yet know God? Does your heart break for the people who aren't yet saved? Forget whether they are evil like the Ninevites or not, and actually, at the end of the chapter, you'll notice that it says that these were people who did not know their right hand from their left, which is basically saying they were uninformed. They didn't know about God to be saved in the first place. So forget whether they're evil, but do you know people who don't know about God? Does your heart break knowing that they need God and yet don't know him? Do you overlook what people have done and instead realize that they don't know their right hands from their left? Do you slip an eight-word message into your conversations with them, telling them that God loves them? What is the position of your heart towards them? Now, I mentioned God's sovereignty right at the beginning, and now, now it's time to come back to it. And so the last question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to God's sovereignty in our world? Megan and I have recently started watching Band of Brothers, and I've seen it, so don't, don't worry, you don't have to worry for me, but I, I'm watching it again, and what a great show it is. And as we watched in the first episode, or if you don't know, it's about World War II, but in the first episode, their planes are taking off, they're taking the the airborne infantry across the lines back to, to drop them over in France before D-Day. And as you watch, I was struck by how much the characters who fill our whole world as we watch the show just form part of a bigger picture. You know, there's 10 people on the plane as, as they take off and then it pans out and you see all the planes in the sky. We're watching a show about a, roughly 130 people, but it, it never feels that many. And yet they were only part of the 150,000 people who took part in D-Day. And yet each of those small group of people's mission feels vital. It always feels important to the overall objective of winning the war. Well, I want to remind you and encourage you that God has an, a big plan too. And that each and every one of us have an important role to play in it. So as we wrap up this whole series looking at Jonah... I'm reminded of God's sovereignty over all situations. And sovereignty is a fancy-sounding word that just means supreme power, supreme authority. 
and there is no more supreme, no more powerful authority than God. In Daniel chapter 4, we read, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? When I read Jonah, I am reminded of God's sovereignty because he wants something to happen, it happens. Whether it takes a storm, a whale, eight words, an angry prophet, if it's God's plan, it's going to happen. But he also has the sovereignty to save all people, which he has done, because not even death could hold him down. God has sovereignty over death, which he offers to us as well. In Acts chapter 10, it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So the final question we need to ask ourselves is how do we respond to God's sovereignty in our world? How do we act when we are part of his plans? How do we respond when things aren't going our, own, going our way? Do we act like Jonah and run the other way? Or do we see ourselves like one of the band of brothers, like someone in an army who completes their mission knowing that it's a small, small part of a much larger plan? Do you submit to God and say, okay, God, I can do this because you give me strength to get through it and because I'll see your purpose done. And so as we do this and we accept God's sovereignty in our world, we start to see how much grace we've received from Him and we're encouraged to extend it to others. As we start to accept God's sovereignty in our world, we start to see how our heart isn't aligned with His, how our anger and frustration or apathy towards Him is misplaced. And instead, we need to reposition ourselves in a position of faith. But most importantly, accepting God as our sovereign ruler means first doing that, accepting Him. Because otherwise, we are all worthy and deserving of the punishment that was coming the way of Nineveh. So to this morning, as we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to accept God as your sovereign ruler, as your king, to accept his sovereignty over death. So together we're going to pray a prayer. And if you'd like to accept God, to accept Jesus for the first time, or maybe even recommit your life to him, I want you to pray this prayer earnestly in your heart, but we'll all say the words together. So why don't you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I want you. I want you to be my sovereign king. I want to align my heart to you and align it with yours. I want to receive your grace. I want to receive your salvation. I know I'm not perfect and I need you, 
ask you to come into my life. I commit my life to you and believe you are who you say you are. Thank you that today I am saved. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you in church again this weekend. To find out more about our church, find us online at c3churchwatson.com.au.